It can be very uncomfortable to be in the presence of an angry person. Would you agree with that? Like, we don't really choose to hang out with angry people, right? We all get angry, but it's not what we prefer to be around, I would say. Um, I think back to my, my college days. Uh, there was a professor who taught history there that happened to be my favorite professor. He just had this passion um, for teaching, and he made history come alive. But in retrospect, you know, and I would never have said this to his face, um, I would say 20 years later that he happened to be a guy that just happened to be a little bit, I can't say anything different than this, moody. And there were some days where he was really happy, and I loved those days. And there was other days where it was just like, what time are we done? Because everyone in the room is uncomfortable. I remember, in fact, when the class before us would come out of his room, there were many days where I'd ask, you know, my friends as they came out, like, how is he today? Is he bearable today? You know, like, because you just didn't know. Another example, uh, one of my friends or classmates was um, one day, and this is something you would never want to do in this professor's class, um, he started nodding off. And I know for some of you, it's been like many moons ago since you were in school, um, but maybe this happened to you or you'd kind of do one of these, right? And um, we saw that happening from the back of the room and it was just like, okay, here we go. This is a train wreck waiting to happen. And before we could go and like poke him to wake him up, um, the professor saw him. The entire mood of the room just changed. And there may or may not have been an eraser from the whiteboard that got thrown at my classmate's head, which don't let that out of this room, okay? That's probably not a good thing, but it happened. Anyway, so being around someone who's angry can be an uncomfortable thing. That can be true, of course, with a college professor. But maybe even more than that, as a college professor has you for about an hour, what it would be like to be in the presence of an angry God. A college professor has power over you for an hour, the almighty, all-powerful God has power and influence over us every single day of our entire lives and also into eternity. And if you've taken the time to read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, but in the New Testament too, you've come across sections of Scripture that probably worried you, or at least alarmed you, or asked you, made you ask the question, like, what's up with God? Now, there's no examples of him throwing a whiteboard eraser. It's just worse than that. He sends judgment and punishment and fire to entire nations, or maybe even to specific people. So, is God just kind of like my college professor? Like, he's a little and you better catch them on a good day and you better, you know, flip a coin because they're not sure which God you're going to get. Um, <laughs> I thought about a, a verse that I wonder if you've ever read before. Jeremiah sort of wrote down some words that God was actually speaking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote down, See, the storm of the Lord will burst out, not in beautiful rain, <laughs> but in wrath 
It's a driving wind swirling down like a tornado in the Hebrew on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. Now, raise your hand if this is anyone's life verse. <laughs> Anyone pick this one for confirmation? How about your wedding? I will tell you that I don't like this verse. And I will not memorize it, although I should remember it. There's something about this characterization of God that bothers us, that makes us uncomfortable, like a student in a professor's classroom. That God might be angry, and what makes it also confusing is that we always talk here about how God is love. He's the compassionate God, forgiving. That the best characterization of God is love. That, that, that his grace is amazing. That he's filled with mercy and kindness. So what's going on? Is it just flip a coin? But here's what I'll say. That the answer to that dichotomy, that difference, that contrast is so, so important for us to think about and to consider. And that's what we're going to do today. What, what, we've, been, what we've been doing over these last few weeks is uh, looking at the last few days of Jesus' life. And we've been seeing how he went through a whole host of different emotions and watching how sort of he went through those emotions and what he did with them and why he acted the way he did can make a big difference for us. And so in week one, we saw how, how Jesus showed empathy towards the people around him, and in turn, he has empathy for you. He empathizes with your struggles. Um, week two, we saw Mary uh, pour a $50,000 bottle of perfume, which, by the way, um, I would have, like Judas, probably had words with her after she did that. I mean, and yet her heart was in the right place. And we see Jesus feeling honored by Mary. Last week, uh, we looked at how Jesus was in a situation um, where he felt overwhelmed. This week, this week, we're going to see just four days before Jesus died, Jesus get really, really angry. And in fact, when it comes to the events in Jesus' life that have been recorded for us, because maybe there's a different instance that we don't know about because it wasn't recorded. This is the most visibly and outwardly angry in this account that Jesus ever was. And here's why this is important for us to unpack, our first fill-in. Because your view of God, we've talked about his love and grace, his anger and his wrath. Your view of God affects how you view every detail of life. If God is the catalyst for everything, our hope, our peace, our joy, and even our living, it makes a difference in who God is and how he's interacted with us and then how we respond and interact with our families and our spouses and our employees and our employers and our classmates and on and on and on. Your view of who God is affects how you view every detail of life. And so let's turn to Mark chapter 11. Once again, it is the Monday before the Friday that Jesus would die. On reaching Jerusalem, 
Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of the money changers and benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Next verse. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, this is really, really interesting, and maybe a picture of Jesus that either you're not aware of or that you haven't thought about much. Because in Sunday school, um, I, I never had this picture of Jesus. I always had these types of pictures, right? It's like well-manicured Jesus. Like the disciples ironed his robe, and uh, it's always unstained and perfectly hemmed. And uh, I mean, that beard I mean, perfect Jesus beard, right? And I don't know what Jesus beard looked like, and I'm not poking fun at all. I'm just poking fun at these pictures that always seem to be so idyllic and so perfect. And yes, Jesus did invite the children to come and sit on his lap. What an amazing, gracious God we have that has time for even little children. And I'm sure he smiled at them. And yes, Jesus did preach near the Sea of Galilee. But it's interesting, these seem to be the only pictures of Jesus. Did you ever have the, the picture on the flannel graph of the, the furious Jesus with his hands up with a whip or uh, cords as uh, you know, John records him clearing out the temple? Or the, the hollering, yelling, ticked off Jesus, who is the money changers try to stop him as they inevitably must have, that he's like, get out of my way. And he starts pulling over or pushing over all of the tables and scattering merchandise and scattering coins and scattering animals all over the place. I mean, verse 16 said that he stopped people from carrying merchandise in the temple courts. How do you think he did that? Um, guys, please, out of here with that. I don't think they would have just listened to him either. I guarantee he had to get somewhat physical. Jesus, the Son of God, was very, very angry. And the question that we need to recognize and understand, the question that's the heart of the seeming dichotomy with God, because Jesus is God, is, is why? Why was he so angry, and what can we learn from it? Well, I think for us to, to get there, we need to talk a little bit first about the temple. That's where Jesus was that day. Now, when it comes to God's presence with us, um, God, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, promised that he would be with us wherever we go. You do not have to go to church to be in God's presence. I remember when I was a kid, the, the phrase that church is God's house was used, I think even more than it is today. And when I was really, really little, I kind of thought like God lived there, like he had a bed there. And I even might have went to look for his bedroom um, the first time we were at our new church and found out that he has lots of houses because there's thousands of churches and that's not really what it meant that he physically lived there, right? We have this amazing, I guess, blessing of God being wherever his people are. And I want you to know that when you're in, when you're up in the middle of the night with a crying baby or just stress or whatever it is and you're feeling all alone, 
that God is right there with you and that he will give you the strength that you need. What a, what a great blessing. But in the Old Testament, there was also a place of God's special presence. It was the temple in Jerusalem. And this middle portion here, this building, actually had a room in it called the Holy Place or the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. And in that room was a big box overlaid in gold called the Ark of the Covenant. And that was like the object that represented God's presence. So much so that if you went in that room, or even more so if you touched that box when you weren't supposed to, you would die because sinners cannot be in the presence of a holy, perfect God. There was a special presence of God, a special place in Jerusalem. And when people gathered there, um, they would gather for prayer and they would gather for focusing on their relationship with God, much like you might in a church in 21st century America. There was something else they did there that we don't do anymore, which is they would bring animals, like goats and birds and lambs, and then they would actually have them killed and sacrificed and burned up on an altar, and blood would be all over the altar area, which was right there in front of uh, the most holy place, and there would be the smell of animals and the smell of fire and lots of blood, and this was all a stark reminder of the depths of the people's sin and the need for there to be blood shed or life given in order to redeem us from that sin. This was a very special place. And so Jesus gets up on the Monday before the Friday that he would die, and they go to the temple and they walk into it. Um, and they walk into this outer courtyard you see on either side. It was called the outer courts or the court of the Gentiles. And as he walks in, what he finds is a marketplace. What he finds in the place of God's special presence is a whole bunch of buying and selling going on. One commentary I was reading said, you, you might liken it most to maybe the activity you might find if you've ever been in the New York Stock Exchange, okay? Just a flurry of activity. Everyone worried about what they're making or what's happening or what money they're losing or making and all of that. And one thing I want to say, because part of our message today is just for you to better understand what would happen at the temple and also at the Passover is that during the Passover, which was only a few days away, even without the buying and selling, this area was filled with people. It was a busy place. So as an example, they say that Jerusalem around the time of Christ, uh, the population was about like between 50 and 100,000 people. But at the time of the Passover, about 2 million people would descend on Jerusalem. So it was filled with people. And it wasn't so much the busyness that ruffled Jesus' feathers. It was the focus of so many of the people in God's house and where their hearts were. There's another layer to it as well because I think we read these, this account so often, but I know for me, I've never preached on it before. Another layer to all of this was that the vendors and the sellers were in the courtyards instead of outside of them. And here's the thing. 
um, historically, there needed to be the selling of animals at the time of the Passover. Like if you were a Jew coming from Rome or somewhere else in the Roman Empire, very likely you could not bring your Passover lamb on the boat, okay? So there needed to be the ability to buy pigeons or to buy lambs or to buy um, doves or whatever it might be. But the thing is, how did they get into the temple courtyards? You know there's only one way that that happened? The priests, the spiritual leaders of all of Israel signed off on it. Why would they sign off on it? Let me ask you this. In part, why can you not bring food and drink into Target Field or Target Center? In part. Because they want to charge you $12 for a beer or $5 for whatever. And when he calls this a den of robbers, guess who was in on it? The spiritual leaders of Israel because there was no other way those vendors would have been able to get in there. And in fact, many speculate that they had their own vendors and they had their own animals and that these priests were okay with these vendors saying, you know that sheep you brought? Yeah, it might be unblemished, but it wasn't part of the right farm. You need to buy a lamb from my farm, the priest farm. So we'll buy your lamb back from you for five bucks because we know you don't want to take it all the way home, and you can buy one of these for a hundred dollars or whatever it might be, right? And so Jesus walks into God's temple place of God's special presence and all of this stuff, the shenanigans and this cheating and all of this is going on. And he gets very, very angry. And the best way that I could kind of summarize all of this as to what makes God mad, it's our second fill-in for today, that God gets angry when something else has your heart. For those Jewish leaders and for the vendors and whoever else, because we don't know who else was all involved, what had their heart was making a buck on the Passover versus recognizing what God had already delivered the people through in Egypt, because that was the idea behind the Passover, and looking ahead to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Something else had their heart. Now, how do we apply this to us today? I will tell you, I struggled with this today, I mean this week, of how to apply it. And it's not because I couldn't think of things that sometimes grab my heart. I struggled with it because I thought of how many things grab my heart. Like what I'd like to do is to read this text and think, you know what? I would never do that. Like, I would never for Easter celebration put out a booth that, like, helps to pad my pockets. Like, I would never do that. And I wouldn't. But that doesn't mean that things have never had my heart. You know, what's really sobering to think about is that most of the time, the things that get our heart or replace God at times in first place are not sinful things. 
they usually are things that are good, but we elevate them to the most important. And the only person that can really know what I elevate to first place in my heart at times, the only person that can know that truly is me. Because I'm pretty good at letting people see a good side of me. And I'm guessing you're probably similar to me. The only person that knows what you struggle with when it comes to first place in your heart is you at times. Is it achievement? Is it success? Is it an early retirement? Is it sports? Is it music? I don't know what it is for you, but here's what I know, that if you're anything like me, this is not just a yearly battle at time of Passover. This is a battle of my heart every single day. Because even when I do the right thing, sometimes I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And the honest truth is that there are no more, you know, idols or none of you are tempted to build a golden calf and worship it. The only thing is, all we need to do is look in the mirror every morning and we see in 21st century America the idol that we struggle with the most. And it's not again that those things I mentioned are bad. It's when they take our hearts. And the truth of the matter is that God deserves our heart. He absolutely deserves to have first place in our hearts. Um, we would not be here if it wasn't for him. That breath couldn't make it if God didn't give it to me. And I thank him for every single one I get. We may not have everything we've wanted. And it's okay to aspire to more. But in the meantime, we be content because we have everything we need and God has taken care of us. They, they say that the worst part of hell is not the heat. In fact, there's some argument whether it's even the heat is even a part of it, or whether it's figurative to represent just how bad it hurts to be absent of God for eternity. See, we, we need God, and he asks for first place in our hearts. And when that doesn't happen, he gets angry. Can and I was trying to figure out how do I best describe this anger that he feels? Because so often the anger we have sort of quickly grows into sin. It might be righteous anger, like anger over the right thing, but then because we're so screwed up, we end up using that maybe even righteous anger into anger that's been manipulated to come out in ways that are sinful. And I, I think that the best example of how God feels when something else has our heart is found in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, there was a prophet named Hosea. And any of you who know Isaiah, Hosea's story know just how unique it was. Hosea, a prophet, a good guy, a good man, a follower of God, a, again, a, a prophet, he was asked by God, he was given the command to marry Gomer. Now, two things. Gomer is a girl, a woman, 
and don't name your daughter um, Gomer. We've got lots of babies being born around here. Take that one off the list. I don't care if all the kids are G names. Don't use that one, okay? Um, anyway. And the thing about Hosea being told to marry Gomer is that Gomer was well known in the community and in the area for being adulterous. She had given herself to many men, and she had a reputation as a person who didn't care about herself, and who was used, and who was abused. And then God comes to this pastor who kind of has his life together, although we're all screw-ups, who's been waiting for the right woman in his life, probably, and says, here's the right woman. Go marry that adulteress. And Hosea, bigger man than I, he did exactly like what God had commanded. And just think about the difference that made for Gomer. From being a person who no one would probably look at, who the community probably had threatened to stone, to now being given a home and stability and love and to be cherished, and to be taken care of. And all of those things that come from having a loving, faithful spouse. And I would like to tell you that Hosea and Gomer's story then goes happily ever after. But for those of you who know Hosea's story, and it's not a story, this actually happened many years ago, you know that wasn't the case, because guess what happened next? Gomer, the adulteress, even though she had been given her life back, she went back to adultery and cheated on the man who gave her everything. And in fact, it seems very likely, as it's referenced in the book, that she not only committed adultery, but she actually um, got pregnant with another man's child. And God says, that's what I feel like when we put someone else in first place in our lives and when we in that sense are unfaithful and commit spiritual adultery. I cannot think of as a married man um, anything worse than that feeling. Would I feel sad? Yeah. Would I feel devastated? Yeah. Would I feel angry? <laughs> yeah. Do you understand why God gets angry sometimes? Why the Bible speaks of his anger? It's not because he's some college professor who flips out sometimes and throws erasers at people because something happened at home or something. I don't know why he was crabby all the time. <laughs> those things just keep coming back. I must, I must have been blocking that out for a lot of years. I don't know. Anyway, that professor thing. It's not because of that. Because he has every right to be angry because the bride he loves daily in words and actions, we commit spiritual adultery and it devastates him because he loves us 
so much. Now, I think part of the reason why we have so much trouble with God's anger is, and I referenced this earlier, I think so often (laughs) the anger we have devolves into hatred towards people. Like, we might have a righteous anger, but then quickly that righteous anger turns into, I hate you, or I'm not talking to you, or you're my worst enemy, and and all of the the righteousness that might have been there, we begin to use as an excuse to act like a jerk to people. That's not righteous anger, and that's not godly anger. But I think that's why we have a hard time with God's anger, because we just think he's mad all the time, and he's, he's vengeful towards us. Here's our next fill-in. It says this, God never loses his temper, because anger is not a sin, but losing your temper, flying off the handle, that is, whether God does it, which he is incapable of sin, or whether we do it. God never loses his temper, and he always desires reconciliation. He is always there, wanting to renew and restore that relationship. Okay, back to Jose and Gomer for a second. After Gomer went back into her adulterous ways, got pregnant, she also ended up a slave. Poor Hosea. Guess what God asked him to do? I want you to go gather up money and go buy her back and take her back as your wife. I think I'd be looking for my my first ticket out of being a prophet. I think I'm going to go do something else with my life. This is just too hard. And yet, Hosea did it, and God demonstrate how his faithfulness and love never runs out, and how he continually buys us back through what his son Jesus did on the cross, that our sin might be great, and it angers our Heavenly Father, but that his grace is bigger. When Jesus walked to the temple— on the Monday before the Friday that he would die, when he got up that morning with his crucifixion four days away, do you think there was anything on his mind? Do you think he was thinking about like, huh, there's a lot going on this week, I put it lightly, and I'm going to go through hell, and I can say that because he literally did on Friday. And when he walks into the special presence of God temple and people have prostituted themselves by giving this place over to making a buck, with all that on his mind, I am glad that I'm not the savior of the world because I would have flipped out and I would have had a temper and I'd be like, fine, I'm not going to go through hell for these people. I may flip out enough when I promise my kids, you know, let's go, we're going to go to the movie or something, and then I come home and things aren't perfect, and this is my anger issues that I sometimes need to deal with, right? But, you know, like, little things like that we flip out about, right? Here's Jesus, and he doesn't flinch. He expresses his anger because he needs to as a holy God. And yet it does not diminish his love for a moment because here's what Jesus remembers, that Jesus did not come to pay us back. 
He came with the mission to win us back. He knew what he was getting into. He knew what we were like. He knew the depths of our sins. He knew the daily spiritual adultery that we go through every single day. And yet, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, this is another week where I don't have a whole bunch of great one, two, three application. I just want you to recognize this that it is so easy to take God's grace for granted because we think we're pretty good. When we recognize what makes God angry, every time we put something in front of him in our lives or in our hearts and recognize he is just for thinking and feeling that way, but then to recognize that he took out all that anger on his son instead of us. The depths of our appreciation for what Jesus did on that cross and for God forgiving even in a bigger way than Hosea just becomes magnified in our lives and in our hearts. And now, guys, we have this great opportunity, having been forgiven and having been, you know, redeemed, to live out the rest of our days with God at the center of our hearts. Perfectly? No. It's not going to happen. But more and more, each day as we make decisions about what we're going to do or how we're going to use our time or how we're going to use our finances, all that stuff, all of it, what an awesome opportunity God has given to us because yes, God's anger is big and it's just, but his love and his goodness is greater.